0: Father, I have to say that one of my uh, favorite verses is, uh, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I shall live. We have all had the experience of being in a conversation with someone, and it's very obvious that they're not that interested in, in hearing what we have to say. Uh, Their eyes are moving around the room. They're checking out who else is there. They may be looking for somebody. You never do that to us. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. Uh, You are a great listener. And because you're God, you actually know Everything that's on our hearts. And you actually know what we're going to say before we say it. Even before there is a word in my tongue, O Lord, you know it all, David said. But we are thankful that we have your undivided attention. We have your undivided attention because you care. You care for us. That's why you invite us to cast all of our care upon you because you care for us. Cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. So here we are, busy day, a lot of action, a lot of stuff going on, some things that we had planned and foresaw, other things we didn't see coming, uh, interruptions, all kinds of stuff. But we're here. And every guy in this room has some anxiety about something. So in our hearts right now, even silently, we put that before you. You know what it is. You know what we're concerned about. You know all the details. and we have, not only do we have your full attention, but our concerns have your full attention. That helps us immensely. And it helps us not only because you know about it, but it helps us because you have the power to do something about it. How thankful we are for your power and your goodness and your kindness. And we are thankful that you always respond to our prayers. Not always with what we want to hear, but always with what we need. You know what's best. You know all about it. So we cast our care and we cast the timing of our situations upon you because you care for us. Encourage us tonight, Lord. We're living, living in incredibly troubling times. There's a lot of fear right now, but help us to grow in our fear of you, not, 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 uh, not being terrified, but being in awe of who you are. What a great God you are. We are your people and the sheep of your pasture. Thanks for your provision and care and love and oversight. And even when we leave here and go home tonight and we go to sleep, because we have to sleep, you give to your beloved even in their sleep. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We've been talking about being anchored. Um, As men, we are to be the anchors of our homes, the anchors of our family, uh, as fathers and grandfathers. But we are unable to anchor our homes spiritually if and every other way, emotionally, physically, if, if, if we ourselves are not anchored on the truth. So over the last few weeks, we have been looking at uh, God and His Word and who He is. We have been reminding ourselves of uh, how important it is to be anchored in the love of God. We look to God the Father to know how we are to Father to know how we are to function as, as grandfathers. And as we mentioned early on in Deuteronomy 6, it's just not fathers and sons, but it's you and your son and your grandson, might fear the Lord. Then we, last week we were talking about the importance of being anchored in the goodness of God, because so often uh, we, we are somewhat baffled. By the events that occur in our lives and the setbacks and the disappointments, and we all have them. I I, want to continue with that tonight from a little different angle. If I were going to, at this moment, if I were going to title this, it may be different in the morning when they ask me, I, I think I would title this tonight, Anchored in Sound Thinking anchored in sound thinking, I based it on 2 Timothy 2, verse 7, where Paul told Timothy, "'For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and sound thinking.'" Uh, We we are living in, in days where a lot of people are uneasy and a lot of people are fearful and with good reason. There, there is. Um, there's so much turmoil. Honestly, I will tell you this. When when I get up, I I get my coffee and I get my Bible. I've told you this before. The first thing I do is. A guy named Donald Carson, um, sometimes known as D.A. Carson, he has a little, uh, he has a devotional he sends out. There's some great devotionals you can have emailed to your phone. You guys know this. I get Spurgeon's daily devotional emailed to my phone. I get, uh, those are the two I get. Oftentimes just, and it's real brief and it's real short, and the guy just, he just punches biblically. And it's, it's sort of like I, I get a shot of coffee, and then I kind of take a shot of him. Just because it, it's, it's brief, it's short, it's just the guy punches biblically. And I read that. And then usually what I do real quick, just real quick, I check. I'll check uh, a news source. Because I want to know if something major happened the night before. Now, I did that this week. I didn't know about what happened in Vegas until the next morning. But isn't it interesting, and I have to say this, I find it interesting that so many times now I'll check and something big time happened. Something not good, something not pleasant. Um, had a conversation with a friend recently, we were having some dinner, and uh, he had He had texted me some observations of a friend of his who was a Jewish believer, just about what's happening in our world right now. And a lot's happening. You just think about the last few weeks. We've had uh, major uh, flooding in Houston. And then right after that, here comes another one, major uh, hurricane coming up, Caribbean, uh, there's people in Puerto Rico, you know the whole drill. We've got, uh, oh, and then besides that, we got North Korea and we got Iran, uh, fires in California, shootings. We've got, you know, it's just kind of like Jesus said it was going to be. <laughs> Turn with me to Matthew 24. They were asking Jesus. In 24-3, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And he starts giving them some answers. Uh, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. and will mislead many. Then verse 6, you'll be hearing of wars, rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, but those things must take place. Ah, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, uh, we see that kingdom against kingdom. In various places, there will be famines, earthquakes. Oh, there was an earthquake, wasn't there recently, in Mexico City? Yeah, yeah. And earthquakes are increasing; they're not diminishing; they're increasing. Oh, but all these things are really the, the beginning of birth pangs. So, in other words, it's going to get worse and worse. I'm just here to encourage you. But, I, that, hey, I didn't say this. Jesus did. But we kind of see that, don't we? Then they'll deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. He was speaking to disciples, but that's still being true. I was talking with a gentleman today at our noon study, and he has a ministry, has a school in California. They're kind of on the radar because they bring... Um, they bring believers from Africa who are in very uh, threatening situations, pastors, uh, others who want to study and learn the Scriptures, they bring them to California for an intense one-year Bible training class, and then they send them back as pastors and chaplains. They're in areas where they're in, there's intense persecution. And he told me as we were talking, he said, we've had 35 of our men martyred in the last 10 years. One was martyred yesterday for his faith in Christ. Uh, You can read Matthew 24 for yourself. Now, I bring this up because if you understand that Jesus was preparing his men and preparing those who would be his disciples, namely us, he's preparing us for what we're going to face. And uh, that's what good leaders do. That's what good fathers do. That's what good coaches do. You prepare those under your charge for what's coming and what they're going to face. The fact of the matter is, There's so much upheaval, and there's so much, you don't know where it's going to come from next. There's not much safety anymore. That it's easy to become a little fearful like Timothy, and we've got to remind it, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but that of power and love and sound thinking. We have to think accurately and soundly about these events, and the only way we can do that is through studying the Word of God. These things that are happening all around us. It, it really is shocking. I mean, honestly, there have been so many shootings we're, we're, this, this was horrific, I, I mean, more people killed, wounded than anything prior. But it has been—there be—it's it, just the latest in a series, and it's such a frequency. We have got to be anchored as men who are following Christ. We've got to be anchored as husbands and grandfathers and fathers we have got to be anchored because our job is to anchor our families flip over real quick to titus 2. Um, in in titus chapter 2 verse 2 actually we need to hit one Uh, that's very important but as for you speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine uh, doctrine is truth. Doctrine is uh, uh, is is what it, it's a belief that is taught to us in Scripture about God and how God works among men and how God works among nations. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And watch this: Older men are to be. Uh, some translations say temperate or sober. What it means. Uh, is as we mature in Christ, we, we learn to put a, a restraint on our desires. We're not you know, a lot of guys have been addicted to this or this or this, but as the Lord works in our life, we are learning to fight off sin. And, uh, yeah, don't want to say a whole lot on that, but you get that. And then uh, older men are to be dignified. They're to have—that's uh, that, a sense of having weight, of having gravitas— uh, you're serious about life. You're not some 12-year-old, you're not a 40-year-old guy or a 60-year-old guy uh, acting like a 12-year-old. You've you, you got some miles on the tires, you've been through life, and you've seen some things and you've learned some things, and as a result, there is a weight, there is a steadiness. Uh, uh, next word, uh, older men ought to be sensible. Sensible. you're you're thinking straight because you've been in God's Word and you are, uh, you're learning God's Word and you're pondering God's Word as you go through life and as you're making your decisions. Uh, You're sound in faith and in love in your relationships and in perseverance. You're not running over here or running here. You're staying the course with what God has given you to do. That's our job. See, to me, that describes someone who's anchoring those under their charge. Because they are they are learning the truth about God and incorporating it into their life and they are applying it to their life. So as things get worse and worse, children will come to you, grandchildren will come to you others who know you that you're not related to by blood but you have a relationship there'll be conversations something will come up like uh, you know there's so much stuff going on i don't i can't sleep at night i'm not sure i'm, I'm not sure i'm ever going to go to a concert again i'm not sure i'm going to go to a game anything I'm, gonna have, I'm not sure i'm going to church what do you think about that what do you think about that dad what do you think about that papa what do you think We're going to get questions like that. But see, there's an answer for that. If you're anchored in the love of God, if you're anchored in the sovereignty of God, if you're anchored in the truth of God, you're thinking soundly. And God has not given you a spirit of fear, of fleeing, of cowardice, but of power and love and, and, and sound thinking. So, a, a possible response would be, well, kind, here's kind of how I view that. And see, they want to know how you view it because you're older and you're wiser. That's why they're talking to you. Here's kind of how I view it. You know, I kind of view it through some principles that I believe. Um, one of my principles is Psalm uh, Psalm 31. psalm 31 says that uh, my times are in his hands that's a principle i believe all my times are in his hands but uh, i'm not mistaken is that psalm 31 verse is it 15 it is my times are in your hands and so you see All of my times, the moment of my conception, the moment of my birth, my times are in His hands. The moment of my death are in His hands, because Hebrews 9 says, uh, it's appointed for a man who wants to die. And see, the the way I view life is what God says, my time on the earth is in His hands, and I have a moment He has appointed where I will die and breathe my last breath. But until then, I'm immortal and I can't die. And because I believe that, I don't walk around in fear, you see. In fact, I can be in threatening situations, and others may die, but I won't die. That's because of Psalm 68. So, you might turn over to Psalm 68. See, what these Psalms do is they calm us down. Psalm 20 of 68, God is to us a God of deliverances, and to God the Lord belongs, escapes from death. There are guys in here who, by all right, should have been dead. You were in a combat situation, and you survived. Um, or you were in a car with some buddies in high school, and terrible accident. They were killed, you walked away, or you had this cancer and the doctor told you you had six months and that was 12 years ago, or you see, but to the Lord belongs escapes from death. You see, these are principles that we live off of. So Papa, what do you think? I'm I'm not sure I'm going to go to a concert. Well, I understand that because we don't know what's going to happen. But you see the way I view things. And you're not telling them, you're just telling them how you view it. See, I live off that truth. My my life is in his hands. Did stuff happen? Sure. But my life is in his hands. Um, We're going to get these questions. And uh, Another one I might share is, you know, here's the other thing. Not only is my lifespan in God's hands, but God has a purpose for my life. And and Psalm 138 says, The Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. Now, see, they're listening to this. You don't have to tell them, if you want to, that's fine. The, the, The Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. Oh, and you know what? He'll accomplish that which concerns you, and you can't die until you do it. You can't die. just a few nuggets, you see, that give perspective when everything looks completely and totally just out of control. It's, it's not out of control. It's, it's under control. Uh, Jesus told us things would get worse and worse, but as things get worse and worse, somebody needs to be light in a dark world and when people are panicking and when people are, are are losing their breath and people are just freaking out the guy who is steady and calm and uh has uh is optimistic and has hope and is living his life and with a thankful spirit and what's his deal What's his deal? See, there's something really unique about that. So, there's something really different about that. God's not given us the spirit of fear, but that of power and love and sound thinking. Uh, The last uh, couple of weeks, we talked about the love of God. We talked about the goodness of God. I've been planning all week to talk about the providence of God. I've talked about that a lot in here over the years. And one of the reasons I talk a lot about the providence of God is because I think, as a group, evangelical Christians are weak on the providence of God. Um, It's one of the greatest doctrines in the Bible. And what I want to do tonight is we're actually going to go to Isaiah And we're going to pull some nuggets out of Isaiah tonight that will help us not be fearful but rather be hopeful, even as uh, our world is so turbulent and so shocking and we don't know when the next tragedy or the next calamity or the next shooting or the next this or that is going to occur. The first verse I'd like you to turn with me to is Isaiah 26. I don't know if uh, you guys grew up in a church where they would sing the hymn, Jesus, I am panicking, panicking. You ever heard that song? But there is a song that says, Jesus, I am resting, resting, in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Thou hast bid me gaze upon thee, and thy beauty, the beauty of who he is, the character of God. And thy beauty fills my soul, for by thy transforming power thou hast made me whole. Jesus, I am resting, resting. When, when things hit, when things happen, uh, and our world is turned upside down, Sure, there are moments where we have feelings of panic, but I think I mentioned Martin Lloyd Jones last week who said, in his opinion, one of the greatest definitions of faith is faith is a refusal to panic because God's in charge. So, Isaiah 26.3 kind of takes that theme. The steadfast—I'm reading of the New American Standard. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Uh, is it the old King James that says it this way? He whose mind is stayed on thee, thou will keep in perfect peace because he trusteth in thee. He whose mind is stayed on thee on who you are, on your character, on your sovereignty. You're in absolute control, on your power, on your love, on your grace, on your mercy, that you're omnipotent, that's all power, that you're omnipresent, that he whose mind is stayed on who you are, you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Why would you not trust in a God like that? We trust in all kinds of things. He tends to be the last individual we trust. In fact, we fight trusting him our whole lives. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to uh, Isaiah 44. We're going to kind of camp out a little bit in Isaiah 44 and 45. I uh, want to. I want to read to you a. Uh, a definition of providence. Um, J.I. Packer did a little book called Concise Theology, and I'm going to read from his section on the providence of God. Um, The title is Providence, and then right under it, the subtitle is God Governs the World. That's the meaning of providence. God governs it. He owns it. He controls it. He sustains it. Oh, and then the verse he gives is Proverbs 16:33, which is kind of an interesting verse. Uh, in fact, turn over to Proverbs 16. We had this uh, horrific shooting in Las Vegas. And Las Vegas, the nickname of Las Vegas, is Sin City. If you've been there, you know why it's referred to that way. There are some nuggets in Proverbs 16 that'll help us tonight. Um, The one that G.I. Packer referred to is at the end of Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Uh, I remember being in Vegas. I was there for a prayer breakfast for a bunch of doctors, and it was early on a... It was early, what, Sunday morning, I guess, and I am walking across a casino floor to some ballroom where all these doctors are gathered, uh, have a prayer breakfast, and I was going to speak, and I'm walking across the casino's floor about 645 on a Sunday morning. I was shocked how many people were at the tables. They'd been up all night, and they're throwing those dice. Come on, baby. Oh. And I'm watching these guys. I mean, I'm walking across those miles of floors, it seems like, and I mean there was a lot of dice, and there's a lot of guys throwing those dice. This verse popped into my head. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Every roll of the dice is governed by Almighty God because of his providence Uh, God governs those dice God uh, you know really God owns those dice God uh, because he's coming up the way that he determined before you ever threw him that's the power of God and that's the providence of God there is no chance there is no luck there's only the providence of God. Scripture teaches that time and time again. Did you get a promotion? Oh, man, I was lucky. You weren't lucky. That was the providence of God. Psalm 75, promotion comes not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert, but promotion comes from God. He raises up one, he sets down another. Oh, were you demoted? Oh, yeah, man, I can't believe I lost my job. Guess who was behind that? God, he raises up and he sets them down. You ever lost a job and you didn't see it coming? Kind of shocking, kind of stunning. But you see, that too is under God's control in my life because of his providential care. Uh, We're in Proverbs 16. Let's, um, how much... Let's just talk about Vegas. How much stuff is done in Vegas that somebody knows shouldn't be done, and they even have shows on TV, and sometimes they're out of Vegas where the cops will pull them over, arrest the guy, and this guy is explaining himself away and justifying himself in his own mind. Look at uh, Proverbs 16.2. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. By the way, have you heard the term what what... What's done in Vegas stays in Vegas? Yeah, you don't want to believe that. (laughs) Yeah. Because all things will be brought into the light. Notice verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Now, that's going to throttle some guys in here. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Um, We'll see this in a moment. God is never the author of evil, but God uses evil. He's not the source of evil. He can't be because of his character. God is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God cannot sin. God cannot lie. There are certain things God cannot do. This is a great mystery. There is evil. God's never the source of evil, never the author of evil, but I've said it before, it's one of the tools on a Swiss army knife. He uses evil to achieve and accomplish his purposes. This stuff, and, it's, and our question how does he do that? Can't explain that to you. We just know that he does. Joseph said to his brothers when they. At the, after his, their father had died, looking back on what they did to him when he was 17 years old, they sold him into slavery. He says to his brothers, years later, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good to bring about this present result. Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good, all things, the good things in your life and the bad things. The evil that's occurred in your life in some way shape, fashion, can't tell you how, God takes the worst that happens to us, and we know that God causes all things, even the evil things, uh, sexual assault, murder, rape, uh, you name it. Whatever has happened to you, the worst thing that's ever happened to you, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose this is all under the providence of God I uh, I I worked on this message last Thursday. I worked on it five hours at DFW Airport while I kept waiting for a plane to San Diego. And, um, and when I talk about providence, there's so much stuff in the Bible. Providence is one of the most wonderful doctrines in all of the Bible. John Flavel, the old Puritan pastor, used to say, learn to adore the providence of God. You adore it. It's how God works in our lives. You say, what is this providence? Well, let me read Packer to you. He does a great job of explaining it. God's—and he quotes, first of all, from the Westminster Confession, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. You say, what's that? Well, it was a bunch of Presbyterian guys a long time ago who wanted to teach a lot of stuff in Scripture, so what they would do is— They kind of boil it down and so they could teach it to new believers and to young people and and to children, and then they give all the Scripture references. But let me just jump in here. Packer starts with this. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. God's in charge of all things. I think it's Ephesians 1.11, watch this. He works all things after the counsel of his will. Most Christians think, most of us think, he works some things after the counsel of his will. See, the Bible says he works all things after the counsel of his will, right? Now, Packer says this. If creation was a unique exercise of divine energy causing the world to be, and it was, One second, there were no stars. The next second, they were all there. That's how creation happened. Although most people aren't taught that anymore, and a lot of Christians don't believe it. If creation was a unique exercise of divine energy causing the world to be, watch this, providence is a continued exercise of that same energy whereby the creator, according to his own will, keeps all creatures in being, involves himself in all events, and directs all things to their appointed end. The model is of purposeful, personal management with total hands-on control god is completely in charge of his world watch this his hand may be hidden but his rule is absolute and then packer must give 35 scriptures to back that up okay this is heavy-duty stuff but you see sometimes you got to dive into the deep end in fact it's good to dive into the deep end. Why wouldn't we go into the deep end? <laughs> because we're more comfortable in the shallow. Uh, w- w- when it's shallow, you got a little bit of control. But when you're, when you're in the deep water, that's a little bit uh, frightening. I came across an article a year ago in a commentary. I came across a section of the book of Isaiah by Ray Ortland, a pastor in Nashville. When I spoke for Chuck about a year ago, I quoted some paragraphs out of this. It's entitled, God's Surprising Strategies. It's so good and it's so solid that I printed it off and I keep it in my Bible. There's a couple things I keep in my Bible that are always in there. Because I'll be out speaking somewhere and something's, you know, and I got some things in my head, but there are some things they're not in my head. So I just keep them. But they come up so often when I'm speaking. Or we'll have a question and answer period and someone will ask me a question. And so I can go to a couple of things that I carry around with me. I carry this around with me God's surprising strategies. Uh, It's based on Isaiah 44 through 45. Uh, This is out of his commentary in Isaiah, which is in, it's just excellent. God, uh, God has a way of working in our lives that is counterintuitive. You ever heard the verse in Isaiah, ever read the verse, Isaiah 55:8, my ways are not your ways has God, has something ever happened in your life and kind of shuck, sh- shocked you and stunned you and shook you up and you never saw it coming and it just kind of wow. Sure. I remember having moved my family halfway across the United States thinking God was going to bless this ministry effort that had been planned and carefully organized and all of this. And 12 months later, it just absolutely collapsed. And I remember sitting on those front steps of that house with my kids playing in the yard and Mary sitting next to me, and we were both in an absolute state of shock. I I mean, I could hardly fathom what had happened. I mean, this was such a good idea. I was going to write my doctoral dissertation on it at Dallas Seminary, and they had already approved it. (laughs) It's a good thing I hadn't written it yet. And it absolutely collapsed. That was one of the most shocking and stunning things that had ever happened to us, I was baffled. I could not make sense of that. I look back on it, one of the greatest uh, disappointments, one of the hardest things I ever went through, one of the It just was a devastating disappointment. I could make no sense of it. Now, how many years later, I look back on it, I see the hand of God all over it. It was a blessing from God. Because if you go back to Proverbs 16, you'll find a verse that says, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And you may have a plan that's a pretty darn good plan. I—trust me, he's got a better plan. And it usually means your plan's dying and being devastated. And that's so hard when it happens. God's surprising strategies. God's counterintuitive. My ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. In other words, God's not going to do your life the way you think He ought to do it. So, I want to read some stuff from Ray Ortland to you tonight. I'm kind of doing Ray Ortland tonight because this is so wise. It's so wise. I'll take this out of my Bible and read it every once in a while. I'll just just read it. It's so good. Let's jump into it. He says, many men and women today, and and we're going to be in Isaiah 44 to 45. Many men and women today are living often with inner dissatisfaction without any faith in God at all. This is not because they are particularly wicked or selfish or, as the old-fashioned would say, Uh, Godless, but because they have not found with their adult minds, catch this, they have not found with their adult minds a God who is big enough to account for life, big enough to fit in with the new scientific age, big enough to command their highest admiration and respect, and consequently their willing cooperation. Their God is too small, as J.B. Phillips used to say. It's, and by the way, we should go to Isaiah 44 because of what God declares about himself in that particular passage of Scripture. In Isaiah 44, verse 24, we read, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself. Now, hold on to that and flip back to Isaiah 40. In Isaiah 40, Isaiah 40 is about the power of God, the power of God. And and what he's doing in Isaiah 40 is, He is comparing, Isaiah is comparing God to other things in the world which we think are powerful but are not. He begins in Isaiah 40 with comparing the wisdom of the world to the wisdom of God. Uh, He says in verse 12. And not only the power of God, but the wisdom. Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters or the seas or the ocean in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Well, God's done all that. that that's, uh, that's power. Uh, look at wisdom. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord as his counselors informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? Did he read Plato? Did he read Socrates? Did he, are you kidding? He made those suckers. Who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge or informed him of the way of understanding? Now he's got all right, okay, so the great philosophers, they're nothing. That, that seeks with what Paul said in Corinthians. Then look at verse 15. Oh, the great nations, the great nations of the world, the rise and fall of great nations. God says, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Look at 17. I love this. All the nations are as nothing before him. I love that. Nothing. North Korea. (laughs) Iran. What a joke. All the great civilizations, they're regarded as him as nothing. Uh, Look at verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. That's what he thinks of us. We're just like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in? God does. All—there all, there, are—listen, the Hubble telescope's doing some amazing thing. It has, hasn't even scratched the surface because of what God has done. Look at verse 23. Compare, uh, c- compare uh, God to powerful rulers— Uh, It is he who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root, root in the earth. He merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. Watch this. To whom then will you liken me, that I would be as equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high. See, though, who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing." He created them. He sustains them. Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. He governs the world. That's a big God, is it not? Okay. Ortland goes on. It's possible as our awareness of reality expands with adulthood. Now watch this, because this applies to a lot of Christians. It's possible as our awareness of reality expands with adulthood for our knowledge of God to remain at a juvenile level. You can have, oh, I've walked with God for 50 years. I've walked with God 60, 70 years. Great. Good. There's a difference between growing old in Christ and growing up in Christ. All you got to do to grow old in Christ is get up every day and breathe. But to grow up in Christ, you've got to get to know him it's possible to be uh, old in Christ but have a eighth grade spiritual comprehension reading level and awareness of who God is. You're not supposed to stay in junior high school spiritually. It's possible as our awareness of reality expands with adulthood for our knowledge of God to remain at the juvenile level. If we let that happen, we end up having to choose between the facts. Watch this. As we see them and loyalty to an inadequate God. We end up secretly fearful that some new discovery in human knowledge might overturn our beliefs. We end up worshiping God not with glad confidence, but only as a duty. That is, a defeatist faith. Nowhere does the Bible teach us to think that way. The prophetic faith of the Bible brings all of reality, including the perplexities of life, under the command of God. The Bible doesn't shrink from problems. It deliberately creates more problems for us. Why? Because we do settle for superficial answers. But God wants us, wants to lift us to a mature confidence in Him as the one true God who is wisely managing reality towards a goal that deserves our all. Isaiah foresees the glory of the Lord revealed to the whole world. The Lord is not coming down just to patch things up a little bit, He intends nothing less than a new heaven and a new earth. And He's starting that newness. With us, and he is. You guys still with me? All right. Now, well, as I read this, factor in all this stuff we talked about: North Korea, Iran, uh, the hurricanes. You got the, you got the shootings. You got uh, earthquakes in Mexico City. You got. Uh, and 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 before I read the next paragraph, let's look at Isaiah because he's going to camp on Isaiah 44 and 45. Uh, Look at Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. And he's speaking here to a man named Cyrus, and we'll get to him in a minute. He says, I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one beside me. I'm it. Now watch this. I am the Lord, there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Most Christians do not believe that verse. God would never create calamity. He just said that he does it. Well, 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 that that can't be. No, you're in junior high school. (laughs) And you're 68 years old. You haven't been in the Scriptures. What kind of God do you have? He's obviously not governing the world. Yeah, but, uh, uh, yeah, but, yeah, but. This is who God says he is. Now, does that create difficulties for us? Oh, yeah, big time. Can I explain that? Sure. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Just because, can I understand that? No. Just because I can't understand how God does this without being evil, just because I can't understand this doesn't mean it's not true. It just means that I am very limited and finite. I've got a very small bandwidth. Okay. We'll come back to that. But factor in all these all this stuff going on in our world right now. And then Ortland says, and how does God work out his great plan? What strategies strategies is he using? Does the history We see unfolding around us look like the emergence of a renewed human race in a renovated universe. Is that the lead story of CNN today? Uh, If not, what do we need to understand to be confident in the promises of God? How can we be confident with everything that's going on? Isaiah shows us, watch, I love this. Isaiah shows us the improbable methods God is using. The structure of his message is threefold. First, God accepts final responsibility for everything that happens. Secondly, God warns us not to take offense at that. Thirdly, God calls us to embrace him as God. Then he outlines 44 through 45, okay? I'm going to skip that. Isaiah wants to help us accept God, not as the God we expect, but as the God who does things his own way. God is a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling, Isaiah eight fourteen. But if we'll get past our prejudices and trust him with new openness, we'll find him to be better than we expected. This section 44 to 45 is framed with in I am the Lord who made all things, and I am the Lord who does all these things. In fact, the wording in Hebrew is the same in both lines. God is claiming final responsibility for everything that happens in history. Well, that's going to bring up some problems then. You guys still with me? Now, you could be at home watching a sitcom, or you could be watching a ball game, or, but you're not, you're here, and you're getting a little stretched. But you see, this is how we get to know the Lord. And, and I'll tell you what else. This stuff will lower your blood pressure. This, this, you know what this stuff will do? This stuff will give you a quiet heart. I mean, a quiet heart and a peace which passes all understanding. But we got to get a little familiar with his surprising strategies, okay? Okay, here we go. The whole of creation belongs to God. He stretched out the heavens and spread out the earth by himself. Isaiah forty four twenty four. 24. As the creator, God is free to interrupt the processes of history and bend events any way that he wants them to go, while the prognosticators of worldly wisdom have nothing but past patterns and present trends from which to extrapolate. But God can hit rewind, fast forward, whenever he wants, whatever he wants, no matter what anyone else says. In fact, here's one of his improbable strategies. He plans to raise up a man named Cyrus. (laughs) And this is wild. This is so wild. Oh, have you guys ever heard of Deutero-Isaiah? No. But if you go to seminary, you'll study what's called the German scholars of a couple hundred years ago, the German higher criticism. And these are the guys that were just the big brains, and they studied the Bible. And they're the ones who said, well, you see, actually in Isaiah, Isaiah wasn't written by Isaiah. It was written, there were two men named Isaiah. And you know why they say that? Because there are prophecies in Isaiah, in Isaiah, and especially in Isaiah 44 and 45, which came true. God's going to talk about a guy named Cyrus, who's a king of the Persians. The, um, the people of Judah are in exile in Babylon. They're going in the exile. Daniel and his friends, you know, the whole thing, they're going in there for 70 years because they were following idols instead of the Lord. They wouldn't repent. You know that story. Well, they're only going to be there 70 years. They're in Babylon. At the end of 70 years, they got to go back. God's going to take this king named Cyrus, who's a pagan. And God's going to take this king, Cyrus. In fact, God's appointed him. You're going to be the guy who's going to have favor on my people. And first of all, you're going to destroy the Babylonians, which nobody can do, but he raises up nations, and he sets them down. I'm going to have you knock those guys off, and then you're going to take my people, and you're going to take them back. And only you are going to take them back, you're going to write a check out of your own Charles Schwab account, and you're going to pay for the whole thing, and you're going to rebuild their nation and their city on your dime. And that's exactly what happened. And God said it 150 years before this guy was born. That's why the German higher critic said, well, uh, blah, 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 there was actually two Isaiahs. And now you got guys who say there are three, and now you got, uh, well, it, because it, that, well, that obviously, that, that, there was no way that, that could happen. Well, yeah, there is, there is. but you don't believe in the one true God. Okay. So, here's the deal. God's going to get this guy Cyrus, and he's going to have him take the people back. Uh, in, yeah, yeah. Look at 26. It is I, of uh, 44, it is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be, he, he's, Telling Cyrus what's going to happen. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up her runes again. Look at 28. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He will perform all my desire. He, he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Thus the Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand, to subdue nations before him. Uh, look down at verse 4. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I've also called you by your name. I've given you a title of honor. Watch this, though you have not known me. This guy's a pagan. This guy's an idolater. I am the Lord, there's no other, beside me there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me. God can use anybody he wants to. And what's fascinating, and Ortland goes into this in Isaiah, God speaks against idolatry in this in, in, in Isaiah. You know what? Cyrus was an idolater. And quite frankly, the people of Judah were offended that God would use an would, would use an idolater to send as, as the one who's gonna lead them back. It offended them. They couldn't get their arms around that. That made no sense. That's crazy. God actually calls him my anointed he calls him my shepherd my hand is all over him yeah but he's an idolater God governs the world and God governs leaders Isaiah had been arguing that idols and idol worshipers are stupid but Cyrus was an idolater Uh, it just threw him it made no sense they didn't like it they didn't like whom God had chosen This sounds sort of familiar to me. (laughs) Have you ever seen an election like the one we just come through? I mean, really. He's talking about Cyrus, but you know, you take a step back. You've got to look at things through the lens of Scripture because God still governs the nations. He's still running the world. I've never seen division over a presidential election among Christians as this last one. We had division in our own family. I mean, we couldn't even, we made a rule when we're, we're not talking about it. Because you've got uncles pummeling little boys. I, no, I, I mean, I mean, there is some bad, there's some temper. So the deal is, we're not talking about it. Okay. We wouldn't talk about it. It was too volatile. And there was a split. And what's interesting, Is that when that election came through that night, can we say it was surprising? I think Trump was surprised. (laughs) For sure, Hillary was surprised. (laughs) Everybody was surprised. And to this day, we've got antagonism over that election, and it's not going to go any way soon. You know about all of this. Even among believers, isn't it interesting that some, they look at that, and to them, it's brought great well-being into their life that somebody who's going to, you know, stand up and they're really pleased, well-being, peace, oh, man. And you got others, they look at that, and it's absolute calamity. This the worst thing that could happen. I can't believe it. I just, I, so, you got some Christian, I'm talking about Christians who think this is a, this wonderful well-being because he got in. Others are just an absolute, oh, my God, it's calamity. Wherever you are, God owns it both. God owns it all. So, wherever you are on that, bend the knee, Bow. Listen to this from Orland. And he's talking about, what's this guy's name? Cyrus. What does Isaiah see in 44 and 45? He sees that the sovereignty of God is big enough to include, he sees that the sovereignty of God is big enough to include offense. Offense. O-F-F-E-N-S-E. And we're not talking about Dak and Zeke in the Cowboys. We're talking about, I take offense at this. You had believers who were offended by what God had done. And and so you can go back to previous elections, same thing. Whoever you are offended that they're in there, God put them in because he's got a purpose and he's doing something. If God is sovereign, then all of history, not just church history, is his plan. All events have one ultimate cause and and fit into one great purpose and find their significance in one final victory. That means we can't box God in. It means we can't think piecemeal. It means making room for the improbable ways of God. For example, when the going gets tough and you pray, and then it only gets worse, you could see that as your God, you, you could see possibly your God being overwhelmed by some superior force. Years ago, this guy, uh, Kushner, uh, Rabbi Kushner wrote a book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. And Basically, he said, listen, God feels about as bad about this as you do, but God doesn't have the power we were told that he had. No, that's not right. No, no, you're missing it, pal. But if God really is the king of everything, then the bigger questions of life get simpler even as the smaller questions get harder. What do I mean, Ortland says? The smaller questions are, why do I have cancer? Will my boyfriend get home safely from Iraq? Will there be enough money in my retirement plan to see me through? These are not small questions. They're weighty. But they're smaller than questions like, does my life have any meaning at all? Or do I have any enduring hope at all? Am I on my own in an empty universe? Or is my experience part of a larger drama with God as the author? Those are the bigger questions. And the gospel leaves many of our urgent but smaller questions unanswered even as it assures us of God's redemptive purpose up at the level of our bigger questions. Whatever happens, the greatest thing we can know is this I am the Lord who does all these things. Whatever God does, He is taking us more deeply into His love, and He asks us to trust Him enough not to take offense, but to follow Him. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. a word on the problem of evil, because he says, I make well-being I create calamity. God does not just allow darkness and calamity and then blame someone else. He creates the problems of human history. How could it be otherwise with the sovereign of the universe? Isaiah is not saying that God sins. That's our problem. But the strategies of God include within their scope Everything that happens as God pursues His redemptive purpose in this world. Evil is not outside of God's control. I've said it before evil is that little tool on the Swiss Army night. Probably said it tonight. God will use evil for the good of His people and the glory of His name. Watch this evil is not outside of God's control, He uses it without being dirtied by it. It's brilliant. Therefore, nothing, however, evil deprives God of one particle of his intended outcomes." Again, how could it be otherwise? What's the most vicious evil perpetrated in history thus far? It's the murder of God's own Son by our guilty hands. But Isaiah says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Isaiah 53:10. The Apostle Peter preached that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Acts 223. When Peter said that, he was not excusing himself for denying Jesus. He was saying that the worst evil we have ever committed, God turned into his fountain of salvation. I am the Lord who does all these things. Let's stop trying to rescue God from a problem he created for himself by claiming full mastery over all things. Let's not relieve God of his responsibilities as king of the universe. The very thing we perceive as a problem, God perceives as his glory, namely, God owns the dark moments of life. He bends everything around for a saving purpose. Isaiah 45:7 is not an embarrassment. I create well-being and calamity. It's what we love about God, for no evil can frustrate him. And his surprising strategies are our assurance. One final word from Orlin. In our life, in your life, do not insist, do not insist on what we call miracles. God will use many methods to do great things. And whatever his strategy may be at any given moment, he looks at what he's doing and rejoices in it. You should too. You can be happy that God is God because he's better qualified for it than you are. The reasons we chafe under his providences is is not God. The reason is our arrogant demands of God. God's not offended by honest questions, but he is offended when we accuse him of bungling our lives. Um, Have you ever been disappointed with God? Sure, I have. But what a misread of the situation. If we could take the time tonight to give guys an opportunity to talk about the five greatest blessings in your life and give you time to tell the story, the top five, you would start with a major disappointment. You would start with your plans being devastated. You would start with your heart being broken, and then you would tell the story about how God redirected things and worked them for your good. It's what he does. If you're in a situation right now where you're baffled and you're struggling and, can I say this to you? Don't get angry and don't get mad. Get close to him. He's up to something. Keep a teachable spirit. He knows where you are and he's gonna use this for your good and he will deliver you. Psalm 57 2, I will cry to God most high. Did you catch that? Most high, above all powers. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes his purposes in my life, he will sin from heaven and save me. One of the old Puritan pastors, I've said it before, translated this way. I will cry to God most high, to God who is the transactor of all my affairs HE WILL SIN FROM HEAVEN AND SAVE ME. YOU CAN COUNT ON THAT. God, GOD WORKS SOVEREIGNLY. SOVEREIGNLY IN ALL THINGS. GOD WORKS STRANGELY. AND GOD WORKS SLOWLY. LET'S PRAY. Father, you're up to something in this world, in this nation. We're baffled. We're kind of stunned. But we're at peace, and we're going to rest tonight because of who you are. Uh, Some men in here in the last week have been laid off. Some have gotten news in their family about uh, 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 a life-threatening illness. Some have had some kind of severe disappointment. Some, it's just, Lord, it's life, but, but. We walk out of here tonight trusting you with our lives. There's no one else to trust except you. And you are a deliverer and you are a savior. And even in the darkest moments of our life, you're there with us. as we go home tonight, I would pray for each man. Some are not going to have trouble sleeping. Others have been having trouble sleeping. But I pray that we can all not only sleep but rest because you give to your beloved even in their sleep. We rest because of who you are. As for me, I say that you are my God. I trust in you, O Lord. My times are in your hand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.